How about that cigar? How about that cigar? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Drew Estate Cigar Studios for episode 155 of How About That Cigar Live. Thank you so much for joining us live on Facebook, live on YouTube, and for those of you listening after the fact on the audio podcast, thank you so much for listening to How About That Cigar Live. As always, here in the beautiful Drew Estate Cigar Studios, and let's remind you about the Barn Smoker program, which is returning this year. It is going to be bigger and better than ever before. The 22 Barn Smoker program will consist of these five epic and memorable events in Claremont, Florida, May 13th through the 15th in Strasburg, Pennsylvania, July 15th and 16th, Ellington, Connecticut, August 12th through the 14th, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, September 30th through October 1st, and the Savage Feast 25th anniversary celebration, October 21st and 22nd in Parker, Texas. On the Friday night before every barn smoker event, Drew Estate will host a DE25 exclusive pre-party where attendees will be the first to experience new cigar launches from Drew Estate. These DE25 exclusive pre-parties will allow Drew Estate to share the excitement of the 25-year milestone with more people in an intimate setting with fantastic food and and incredible live entertainment. For more info about the 2022 Barn Smokers, including a full breakdown of ticket tier prices and options, please visit barnsmoker.com. So, episode 155, and Garrett is on the road again. Where are you? Where, where in the world is Garrett Robinson? I am in jail. No, I oh, am... I'm in uh, Chicago, Illinois, and grateful for uh, friends, Aaron Nielsen, local here, and we are at the Byron Cigar Lounge in Schaumburg. Give us a quick pan, and let's just quickly say hi to everybody. Yeah. Turn your, turn your laptop. Good evening to all you fine people in Schaumburg, Illinois. Thank you so much for hanging out with Garrett while we're on the show. Uh, cheers to have you guys, and uh, and... It's uh, it's it's always exciting to uh, you know, get to go on the road and visit different cigar shops uh, when you're out of town. So, um, especially when they let you stay late. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this was a shop I was at a couple months ago when I was in Chicago as well, and uh, they are great hosts, wonderful lounge. Yeah, love it. Very cool. Um, so. Let's uh, let's quickly go through just a couple current events, a um, couple current sporting event related things. Uh, Minnesota Wild are doing pretty well. It's not not perfect, but they're doing pretty well. They're winning when it seems to matter most. Um, setting records as a team, you know, for most goals scored in a season, uh, most goals by you know Kaprizov got the um, got the record for most goals by a single. Uh, in a single season by a wild player. Um, the twins, not so much. I mean, not a great start. It's kind of, yeah, it's when they lose, they lose huge. And, and what did I say a few weeks ago when, before the regular season started, what did I say about Buxton? That he's going to get injured and he's, he'll be lucky to play 60 games and guess who's injured right now. Byron Buxton. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, uh, and Timberwolves. I So that's so funny you mentioned that because I put that on my notes. And you know that I quit watching basketball a very long time ago. But 
now all of a sudden the Timberwolves. So I, I fully admit that I am a fair weather bandwagon fan when it comes to the Timberwolves. Cause really I just don't care about basketball in general, but it's interesting. The fact that they have made it back to being somewhat of a contender and the yeah. fact that they won their first playoff game, they won their first I thought they won their first two. I think they've only played one against Memphis. The Wolves? Yeah, the Wolves and the Grizzlies, I think, have only played one game. Uh, yeah. Game game two is tomorrow night, I believe. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, uh, and they were the highest scoring average on average team during the, the NBA. During the regular season? Mm-hmm. Oh, I honestly, I I never would have known that because I I, did, I I wouldn't have either. I don't follow the NBA. I do watch some college ball. One and two, actually. What's that now? Memphis and Minnesota were one and two. They were. It was the first time the top two scoring offenses were met like that. Oh, they were one and two, and they're in, they're facing up in the first round of the playoffs. That's cool. For for offense. Okay, very nice. Um, and so I don't know if if. Uh, as far as I know, the Minnesota Vikings haven't been making any more offseason moves, um, at least in the last couple of weeks that I'm aware of. Um, the- no, um, so, no. Trade rumors, uh, things like that, but nothing, no nothing, signings. No signings. So the Packers did a, a thing, and I don't know how I feel about it. They signed another aging wide receiver we signed sammy watkins to a one-year deal for four million dollars and i'm not quite sure if that's gonna amount to much but for all we know he's gonna have like his you know uh you know best season ever but i just don't see it he's you know he's getting older and i don't know we'll see but he becomes the guy that Rodgers throws to. Well, so, but there's then there's rumors that the Packers are going to trade up in the draft to get um, one of the higher wide receiver picks in the in the first round. So who knows? Yeah, I think uh, I think the ship has sailed uh, when it comes to uh, Green Bay's run of dominance in the NFC North. And Sammy Watkins is only twenty eight. Yeah, that's. Yeah, he's that's like prime time. He's for old. The next, like, three years. <laughs> uh, Mark Vanderslight, if you can't be positive on our show, take <laughs> your Detroit self. Well, you're not Detroit, he's but Detroit, oh, not I care about here. the Packers, Raul. I care about the Packers. That's who. I love you, Mark. Let's uh, let's bring on our special guest of the evening. It is absolutely time for our special guest. Uh, so, as always, on How About That Cigar Live, special guests are brought to us by our friends at Corona Cigar Company. Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, the Internet's largest and easiest to use virtual cigar store. Corona Cigar Company offers you the finest handmade cigars, humidors, and cigar accessories at the absolute lowest possible price. You'll also find unique and limited cigars containing Florida sun-grown tobacco. As a proud American, president and founder of Corona Cigar Company, Jeff Borshowitz believed it was possible to bring cigar tobacco farming back to Florida. At Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, you'll find the best selection anywhere in the world of 
of cigars containing this special Florida sun-grown tobacco. If you live in Florida or are just visiting, be sure to visit any of the great Corona Cigar locations in downtown Orlando, Sand Lake, Lake Mary, and also the Davidoff of Geneva Lounge in Tampa. For more info on all of that, please visit coronacigar.com and floridasungrown.com. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you would please... Put your hands together and welcome to episode 155 of How About That Cigar Live from Blue Smoke of Dallas, Mr. Jay Davis. Welcome to the show. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you, Jay? Doing great. Fantastic. It's uh, it's great to have you on the show. It's uh, it was it was great to finally meet you uh, in person at uh, at the TPE show. Back in, or actually, no, it was at uh, the Great Smoke. Great smoke. Yeah, that was yeah, a great, great time. Um, so, if you would, Jay, start us out by letting us know where you're broadcasting from and what you have uh, fired up right now to smoke. Well, I'm broadcasting from my house here in Richardson, Texas, and I'm smoking a cigar that I bought at the Great Smoke that you can't really see. It's the Red Meat Lovers uh, Meat Stick. Great cigar by Steve Saka. Very nice. Very nice. And if you are uh, enjoying a lovely beverage with that cigar, um, let us know that too. Well, Willie Herrera's favorite, Diet Coke. Diet Coke. I go through my favorite. Love Diet that Coke. As well. uh, Garrett, what are you smoking this evening? I am smoking the Tatawahe Petite Iglise. I think is how you say it. Uh, gifted me by our good friend Todd Fickner, aka Ninja Studman, <laughs> aka Sexy Beast Boy. I could go on. You could go on, absolutely. Uh, well, I am. Uh, I'm going to fire up uh, a knuckle sandwich habano from Espinosa Cigars, uh, and I think it's time for the Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Toast cam. When lighting your cigar, it's important to be patient, pay close attention to detail, and focus on the tobacco. In the same way, Steve Saka brings those same qualities to the ultra premium cigars of Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Patience, close attention, and focus on the tobacco are the qualities that Saka and Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust have become known for. From Sumber Mesa to Umbagag, Dunbarton has a blend that will fit your palate, your mood, and any occasion. Visit DunbartonCigars.com to learn more. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, so, Jay, let's jump right in. Um, so you have a retail shop in the Dallas area called Blue Smoke of Dallas. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Fantastic. So... Um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of Blue Smoke of Dallas, we'd like to take a little trip back and find out about your first ever premium cigar, uh, when you had that cigar, and if you remember what it was, tell us what uh, cigar you had. Well, I, was, I, I did not grow up smoking. My parents were heavy cigarette smokers, so I decided I was never going to smoke. But I was out playing golf one day. I just turned 40 years old, and my uh, business partner said, how about we try a cigar? 
So when the golf cart lady came up, we we got each got a cigar, and it was it was a house blend. It was basically a knockoff of a Monte Cristo white or a Macanudo, and uh, it was a Cowboys. Uh, we were a Cowboys golf club, so it was Cowboys golf club cigar or whatever. Uh, so I never really had a non-premium cigar before, and I was surprised that I really enjoyed it. And I just started visiting my local brick and mortar, uh, maybe about once every couple of weeks, and then maybe once a week, and then a little bit more and more. And then I really got into the cigar lifestyle. I really enjoyed the cigars and the fellowship. So you said that was right around your 40th birthday? Yeah. You know, for some reason, when I turned 40, I thought, okay, all the rules are off. I decided I'd try oysters for the first time, which I love oysters now. And I decided to try premium cigars. And it was just a perfect time in life. I think before that, I was probably working too much and never really thought about smoking. Um, in fact, about a year and a half later, when I was going to open the cigar shop, I called my brother and asked him if he wanted to invest. And his first question was like, you smoke cigars? And uh, I'm like, yeah, didn't you used to smoke cigars? He's like, well, maybe I had a Dutch master or something once in college. And so really, I had my first cigar at uh, 40. He had his first around 53 or 54. And um, we decided to go ahead and plot into retailing cigars, which we knew nothing about. And I guess the rest is sort of history. I would say so, the first regular cigar that I could identify was a cigar from Villiger. The, I'm going to mispronounce it, the Florida Inklin. It was oh, it's yeah. a, a cigar. I don't know if they still make it, but it used to come in a blue tube. And when I first went to the brick and mortar, I told the guy what I had tried. And he said, well, try this. And that was sort of my cigar for the first few months. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, um, that cigar in particular in the Lancero, which I know Garrett is a big fan of. Um, but oh, so, yeah. so prior to, and, I'm, and I'm, I've got to say, um, if you said it was, you know, around your 40th birthday, I'm thinking this is only like a year ago, but, but I know you're not, you know, <laughs> yeah, you laugh. <laughs> well, I, I, I turned 54 next month, but it, you know, relatively it wasn't that long ago. And it's yeah. weird to think that I've been running a cigar shop for almost 12 years now. So I got so, it quick and heavy, but that's how I approach so everything. Take us back then to, um, you know, like you said, um, when you were golfing, um, your business partner, that kind of thing. So what was your, before, before cigars, what was your life plan? What was your career path, you know, that, that you were on at the time? Well, I was an attorney for a number of years, but at that time, my career path was I was a fee-based financial planner. Uh, that's fancy talk for, you know, I, I met with individuals who were high net worth and uh, we, we sold mutual funds, stocks, bonds. We did some estate planning, um, and that was kind of the, the life plan. But somewhere out in the distance, I knew that I wanted to have my own business. I had been working 100% commission for a long time, but still I felt like I really wanted to own something, and I had no idea what that would be. And then as I started smoking more and more cigars, it kind of became clear to me that that was the business I wanted to be in. Okay. Yeah, Garrett, we're getting a lot of comments about the hair. Love the hair, bro. It's just it's, Was there a was there an electrical accident of some sorts? Um did you get really scared? 
It's mostly the stress of traveling with Todd Fittner all day. <laughs> the, but the beard great. is great. The beard is coming. So really I, well. I, want, I do want to address the beard because it relates to Jay. Now, Jay, I know that the lighting situation isn't ideal where you're at and pictures on Facebook don't do it justice. When I met you at the Great Smoke, one of my first comments was, I have beard envy because <laughs> you, sir, have a great beard. And it inspired me to start growing this. Wow. So, yeah. Um, so I'm, I may just name this the J. The J. I like it. Well, well, I, like I used to say I was inspired by, by Barry Duplissy, but when Meet the Professor did their 26-hour show, there was this gentleman, Aldo, who now works for J.C. Newman. And that's the beard I want to have when I grow up. Yeah. That's a serious beard. <laughs> so when you sat down with, uh, I think you said it was your brother maybe or your business partner, and you started talking about opening up a cigar retail shop, what you know and this was i think you said 12 years ago so yeah what were the what were the first discussions like you know for the for those people who are out there listening or watching and are thinking about opening a cigar retail shop what are the first things that you started ironing ironing over when you when you were talking about details like location and supplies suppliers and all that stuff how did you how, how do the discussions look in the very beginning for, for guys that are sitting down to open a new retail shop? So is the, the question what I did or what I would do now, knowing what I know? Definitely what you did and then follow that up with what you, what, what you would have done differently. Well, initially, uh, I was going to buy an existing store because the store owner wanted to get out of what he was doing. But that fell through. Uh, he had, we had a setup pond price, and then he decided to uh, double it like three days before we were going to take over, and that wasn't going to happen. So, one thing that I knew in my in my small travels was the importance of what I call reps. You know, people that sell cigars to cigar stores. So, I spent about six months meeting with the reps of various companies. Uh, I remember the first person I met with was Jack Sandlin, who was the representative for Oliva Cigars. And I remember he, he said later that he had asked the owner of the cigar shop where I was a member. He's like, is it okay if I meet with this guy? He's looking at opening up a competing shop. And the guy's like, do whatever you can to help him. And he explained to me how pricing worked. And then I met with a number of other um, distributors. So for me, it was not so much learning about the manufacturers that was way beyond what I could understand, but it was meeting the, the reps from all the various companies. And when I was learning how to smoke, I, I had smoked through all the cigars in the humidor where I was going because all the guys there, when I was new, they would say, well, try this, try this, try this. So in a six month period, I'd smoked everything in the humidor. So I kind of knew what the popular brands were, the brands that I liked and Everyone said, you need to talk to the representative. So my first goal was to establish business relationships. And I think a lot of people, 
make the mistake of when they open a cigar store, their idea is, well, I want to have live music or I want to have this great lounge. And one thing I did right, because I did many things wrong, was focusing on the cigars. You, At the end of the day, you have to have good cigars in a well-sized humidor that are going to bring people back. I mean, people can buy pretty much any cigar with some exceptions in any cigar shop, but that's just a staple. You have to have good cigars. And then obviously the customer service and the appointments and all that will, will make people want to come back. But to me, if, if you don't have good cigars for people to buy, they're not going to come back to your store. So having a good size humidor and having as many, uh, many good variety of cigars you can is very important. That was something I believed then and I still believe now. Yeah. So speaking of that specifically, you know, once the place was established and you started to get some regulars, you know, some regular customers, that kind of thing, and you started to look at, and even going into today, when you look at the humidor and you look at the shelf space and you look at what's selling, what's not selling, but there are so many other factors that go into uh, looking at new brands. So as a retailer, what would you say you look for from a brand? And you did mention the reps, and that's a part of it. But aside from that, what do you look for from a brand before you decide that you're going to dedicate shelf space? Yeah, I think that's particularly important today. Uh, back in 2010, I think that it was a little different. You could uh, Brands could grow very quickly. I think it's very difficult for a new brand to come in. So, for example, I'm looking at a brand right now. Can I mention names or should I not mention names? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm looking at a brand right now, Dapper, which I know that, uh, that Garrett works with them. And first of all, the cigars have to be good. So I've, I've done my due diligence. I'm smoking the cigars, but my manager wants to smoke some of the other cigars. I've reached out to Garrett and other people to learn about the brand. And then the second question is, okay, if it's a good cigar, um, where, where are the cigars made? Uh, where's the tobacco coming from? And with Dapper, that's pretty easy because they're made at Naxa, which is a factory in Nicaragua that's partially owned by the Oliva Tobacco Company, and they have some of the best tobacco in the world. Uh, almost every major cigar company that, that we've heard of buys tobacco from Oliva. So that, that's a big positive. And then the second issue is just because it's a good cigar doesn't mean you should bring it in because the question is, Will people smoke it? I mean, I would think that the best-selling beer in the United States is probably Budweiser or Bud Light. Not exactly the best beer, right? Yeah. So sometimes certain brands sell because of advertising and because it's considered cool to smoke that. But at the end of the day, your customers have to be wanting a cigar and asking for it. And then for a mature shop like mine, the challenge is, and my manager, Dave, is very good at asking me this, although I hate it when he asks it because I know he's right. He's like, okay, so you're going to put these nine boxes in the humidor. What are you going to take off the shelf that's already there? What brand are you going to give up on? Because when you bring in a brand, the idea, hopefully, is not that you're going to order the cigars once, that there's going to be a permanent spot. You know, it's like when a store brings in Doritos, you want to continue to sell Doritos for the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah. So you've got to figure out, do I need the Cool Ranch Doritos? Do I need the Taco Doritos? Do I need whatever? Gummy bear flavored Doritos? 
So the same thing with cigars, you've got to figure out what are going to be the right blends for your customers? What are going to be the right sizes? You know, certain blends sell better in larger ring gauges. Some sell better in smaller ring gauges. Some sell well in Lanceros. Um, so that's that's the big challenge. And I think it's very difficult for, for brands like Dapper right now who make good cigars with good tobacco to break in. Whereas I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago it was a little easier. Right now you've got probably... 10 or 12 companies that control a lot of the market space. So if you're going to bring in a cigar that people maybe haven't heard of, you have to have, you have to train your staff and work with your customers to introduce them to those cigars. I know recently we reintroduced Ferio Tego with the legacy brands that used to be Nat Sherman. And we had to spend a lot of time with people introducing them to the Pan America, the Supreme, the Sterling, um, and the fourth brand, which I can't recall right now because I'm old, and under let, letting people know what are the differences in those blends and understanding what they're smoking now and what's going to fit better. Because it depends on the customer. Some customers are going to gravitate towards a heavy Nicaraguan smoke. Some are going to gravitate towards maybe a sweeter, more light cigar. So you've got to kind of know your customer too. Um, you know, if you're if you have a beer shop, for example, and somebody likes a pilsner maybe you don't want to start them off with a guinness because that's not really going to fit their their profile so that's part of it too is you have to kind of figure out in your head what customers are going to buy what cigars and what sizes and then of course when it comes in it, it almost always works out a little differently than you thought so that that's always a challenge is to figure it out because um, otherwise the sort of the default as uh, charlie Minato once said on one uh, podcast Somebody asked him, they said, Charlie, um, if you had a cigar shop, what would you bring in? He says, oh, I'd have Fuente Padron and flavored cigars. Well, that sounds good on paper. But, you know, <laughs> there's customers who like Perdomo. There's customers yeah. who like Rocky Patel. There's customers who like uh, Davidoff. There's customers who like uh, La Florida Medicana. It, so you have to kind of see what your customers like. And you could have the greatest a display of Rocky Patel cigars in your humidor. But if your customers like to smoke the Leaf by Oscar, you might want to have that in your humidor instead. So that's the challenge. You have to know your customers and cigar shops two or three blocks apart can completely differ as to what people like to smoke. And that's the challenge is figuring out what your customers want. It's not about what I like to smoke. I mean, yeah, we want yeah. to make sure that they're good cigars and they're well made, but you have to make sure you have what your customers want. So, let me ask, in your area, um, as I travel throughout the Midwest and I'm meeting with other retailers, it really, uh, there's different pockets of some retailers are best of friends and they support each other and send people to each other's shops. And, and then there's other areas where not necessarily the case at all. Um, what is your experience in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, specifically uh, your retail area? In 2010, I think it was a very uh, disorganized. I don't think a lot of people trusted each other or liked each other. That is not the case today. Uh, it's very commonplace. Um, if, if I need a box of cigars or if a customer uh, needs something, 
uh, we've got good relationships. So, for example, we are not an appointed merchant with Davidoff, and that's not a reflection on Davidoff. It's just that Davidoff only has certain appointed merchants, and we have an appointed merchant 1.9 miles away from us. So customers will come in, and maybe they want a Davidoff. And if that's what they want, I'm not going to sit and try to compare. That's what they want. Well, I know I can call any of the Davidoff shops, depending upon where the customer lives, and say, hey, this guy's looking for a Grand Crew number three, or he's looking for the Oscurio, what have you, and we can send them there. Uh, sometimes the customer will be willing to try something else, uh, but you need to pair up your customer with what they're looking for. And sometimes you just can't carry everything. And with most cigar brands, uh, you have to sell a certain number of their regular cigars in, in order to get their special stuff. So you may not always have access to certain things. So part of it is part of taking care of your customer is to not be afraid to reach out. And in Dallas, I find that we call each other on a pretty regular basis. We want to help each other out. Or I've had stores call me and say, hey, I'm having troubles moving this product. Do you want to buy it for me at cost? And you can sell it and, and vice versa because uh, we all have different customers and, and different needs. Well, so the answer to your um, question is that's a pretty friendly market. Love that's it. good. That's good to hear. Um, and one of the one of the questions we have uh, from a viewer kind of ties into what I was going to ask, uh, and that's kind of about analytics. You know, how deeply do you guys go into analyzing uh, your sales numbers, what sells, what doesn't? And Greg's wanting to know what the top selling wrapper leaf is and Vitola in your shop, if you happen to know. I I am a I am a numbers guy, and I'm I'm very aware of what sells. Uh, at our store, without question, the number one selling brand is Arturo Fuente, um, and I would say Cameroon wrapper, uh, the African Cameroon wrapper that you get on the eight five eight, the Don Carlos, uh, the Hemingway lines. Those are those do extremely well. Um, I mean, obviously, we have a lot of great a lot of cigars that sell very well. But Fuente consistently just sells extremely well in our store. And part of that is because we price Fuente at MSRP. And without getting into the details of it, Fuente has a different pricing model with lower margins than a lot of companies do. They have a more traditional margin that was more prevalent in the 20, 30 years ago than uh, for other brands. And we charge the correct price. So we tend to sell a lot more volume of that. Um, but part of that is just the customers. I mean, when we first opened, we wanted to carry all kinds of boutique cigars. And that's great on paper. But our customers, they wanted Arturo Fuente or they wanted Romeo and Juliet Reserve Real or they wanted Monte Cristo. Why you have to carry uh, what the customers like. Now, you can maybe sort of nudge people in a certain direction. But I don't think it's an accident that Fuente, Padron, Tatawai, and my father, those four brands are consistently month after month after month sell well. And it's mm -hmm. not because we're, we're trying to force those upon people. It's just those are what are, are fitting the palates. So I would say Cameroon wrapper is by far the, the best-selling wrapper. Uh, but we sell a lot of cigars coming out of the My Father factory. And they don't make anything with Cameroon that I'm aware of. Um, yeah, I don't believe so. A lot of those wrappers do come from Oliva. Yeah, that's true. So I want to kind of move into the next sort of uh, or most recent uh, addition to your cigar career. 
and that is the fact that you are a board member of the Premium Cigar Association. So talk to us first about when you took on the role of a board member and how how you came to become a part of that board. Well, I, I they, they had their first open elections last year, and I submitted my name in March, I guess, and then there was an election during the month of May, and um, so I found out in June, and then I became a member of the board in July. Um, I had been quite critical of some decisions and actions of the premium cigar industry, and I'm a pretty vocal guy. So I reached out to Scott Pierce, the executive director or president of the PCA, and I expressed a lot of my concerns and frustrations. And what surprised me about Scott was that he was not afraid to take tough questions. He was not afraid to answer me and say, well, yeah, I understand your frustration, but here are the facts behind the decisions we're making. And then one day I called him up and I said, you know, I'm done complaining. If I, if I really want to see the Premium Cigar Association improve from my perspective as a retailer, I need to get involved. And I pushed at them to be a part of a committee or maybe run. And Scott said, well, you know, we're going to be doing our first open elections. And uh, if you if you really want to be part of positive change, then run for the board. And that's what I did. Okay. Um, and since, so we're looking at, what is this now, about uh, nine or 10 months that you've been on the board? Yeah. So uh, since becoming a board member, and we obviously know that there are, you know, there are probably, well, maybe we don't obviously know. I would assume that there are things being a board member that, um, according to the, the agreement you sign when you become a board member, there are certain things you're not allowed to talk about. Is that correct? They tell me that I signed a non-disclosure agreement, and I hopefully <laughs> I haven't violated it. <laughs> but I'll give you an example. Right now, uh, we're in the midst of talking about where the trade show is going to be in 2024 and maybe 2025, because we already have a contract with the Sands Convention Center for the next two years in Las Vegas. Right. And I know that I was one of the people saying, well, why don't we have a trade show in Tampa? Or why don't we have a trade show in Chicago? Or why don't we have a trade show in St. Louis? And being a part of the board, it's really interesting because then you have to look at who wants to host us. When do they want us to be there? Like there are times in the year when the Sands does not want a smoking convention. There are other places where you can't, you have to get a special mayoral exemption to smoke. And you realize that, oh, you have all these great ideas of where we could do a trade show. But when you look at the number of people that come to the trade show, and the things that we need to do on the trade show floor and the and the after hour times when we get together and we meet and that's where i think a lot of the the great networking occurs uh your choices are a lot more limited like yeah. i think it's criminal and I, this probably violates my non-disclosure agreement but i don't think scott will fire me is <laughs> that you know finding out that the sands charges 125 dollars for a gallon of coffee i'm less worried about the price of gasoline <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, yeah. and part of the PCA's mission is that, you know, we, we are a nonprofit. So right. if, if we bring in X dollars and you got to subtract Y dollars for the cost of the trade show, and what's left is what we spend to uh, advocate things with the, uh, the FDA, either uh, 
dealing with senators and congresspeople or in lawsuits or dealing with smoking bans and issues across the entire country, you have to weigh it. Like one of the places we looked at for doing a trade show, it seemed to fit all the right boxes. But when you looked at it, it wasn't going to leave us any money for advocacy. So those are things that have to be weighed to make sure that that because we're entrusted as a board to spend as little money as we can yet to make everybody happy by spending lots of money because whatever's left is what's going to allow us to do advocacy. You know, simple things like getting doing work with local people so that you can still smoke a cigar on the beaches in South Florida um, or you can, uh, you know, get a tax cap in Delaware and the, the, the all the different work that the PCA does. It, it's it's mind boggling to me when I get reports on all the things that we're doing. I don't know how our staff, which is so small, does so much. Well, yeah, and even smaller since uh, the, the furloughs after, you know, uh, at well after during covid uh and and only a uh only a small percentage of the staff was brought back or or re or, or positions refilled um as far as the board yeah meeting, that was not a good look yeah it wasn't but you know it's it is is what it is um and they uh, i will i will agree that um S scott pierce is is very open to criticism and i've never seen him um i've never seen him push back in a in a way that's um as if to shake off criticism or say that it's not warranted he seems to always hear it and accept it and uh, at least try to uh, take it in and learn from it. Uh, and that's that, that there's a lot to be said for that in this day and age, because uh, these days, criticism, not not everybody in positions of leadership uh, deals with criticism very well. And he knew what he was yeah. signing up for and um, knew that there was going to be a barrage of criticism and um, you know, to just what are we going to do to steer this ship? And um, I agree, he has done a very good job fielding all of that. And I look forward to the PCA in years to come. So, yeah, Jay, if you, Scott, if you Scott, can take us, gets, anyway, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead with what you were going to say. I was at Scott, Scott has a very healthy attitude towards criticism. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't let it bother him, I genuinely. Uh, you know, I think he's been quoted as saying, you know, the lion doesn't concern himself with what the hyenas say. But at the same time, he has a very mature aspect that no matter who shoots the criticism or what it is, he spends the time to think about it and consider it. And uh, that's an incredibly uh, rare trait. Uh, he's always willing to listen no matter where it comes from. And if it's a good idea, he's willing to pursue it. Um, Scott always has a vision like we're here and we're going to there, but he understands you have to work incrementally. Uh, it reminds me of the movie Lincoln, where they Tommy Lee Jones played a senator who really wanted a lot of things to happen, and it had to be explained to him, you know, we need this first step. We need to pass the 13th Amendment first to get there, and Scott's very good at understanding uh, from a political standpoint 
okay, this is where we're going to go. And he never loses his eyes on the prize, but understands incrementally how you have to change. And in the, the five years that he's been uh, the president of the PCA, I think that he has really kept his eye on the ball. And, and he's, he's a great leader and a great employee. All the, the people that work for the PCA, are they really impress me. You ask them to do something, they do 110% above what you ask them to do, and then they always report back. I'm very impressed with them. So on that same line of thinking, when it comes to, you know, like you, you mentioned Scott's vision, and I'll be honest, from what I've seen in, and I'm not talking about the, the current structure, I'm saying I've, I've seen, because my first PCA show was 2016, and learning uh, little bits along the way and, and diving in as much as I can to learn as much as I can about the PCA. Um, and it hasn't always been easy to learn about the PCA because until recently, the PCA hasn't been very transparent, but I do believe that's improving. So from the standpoint of what you, what you talked about, the vision, you know, that, that Scott has a vision and getting from point A to point B, how, how does the board help or hinder, real talk, how does the board help or hinder getting that vision realized? I think we do both. I think that we hinder that vision at times and we help that vision at times. And, you know, Scott has to work with the the, the uh, president of the PCA that, you know, Greg Zimmerman is our president right now. And, you know, he's part of the executive committee. And I, I think it's, um, it, to me, it's very impressive. I, I've been on a couple of boards before, but I've never been on a board where, you know, people are not afraid to express their different concerns and interests. And sometimes we don't always know the right way to approach something. But people are always given an open forum to speak. And I found, especially as a new member of the board, uh, people will let me present my opinion. They may not agree with me, and we may not ultimately, may not ultimately go there. But I do, I do think there has been, to your point, a, an increased desire to be more transparent, to be more open about the things we're doing for our membership. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, we've only got so many resources to work with. And... I think in general, we, we do a good job of the big picture, but you know we're gonna make mistakes here and there as we try to get there. So sometimes I think we do hinder him and sometimes we, we help with that vision. So as we look at the, the, the way the PCA is as an organization right now, um, with, and we get, we get really caught up a lot of times in just focusing on the trade show. And, and it's important for us to remember that the PCA is 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 much more than that so from the standpoint of 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 the health of the organization right now and by health i mean is it you know is it functioning uh cleanly and is it is it running as as lean as possible while still being effective and all those things where where is the pca as an organization really getting things right right now I think they're doing a good job by paying attention to what I'd call a, a dual mandate. I think for a long time, the goal of the PCA was to run a trade show. And I think that everyone understands with or without COVID that you don't actually need to go to Las Vegas to sell your wares. And 
but at the same time, that is that is how we we raise money, and we're working on uh, other ways to raise money as well. I think the PCA does a good job as far as trying to figure out um, how to get more people engaged. Uh, the biggest challenge I think the PCA faces is apathy, whether that is from consumers or manufacturers or retailers. Um, you know, a lot of people just feel like when they look at a problem, it's like Douglas Adams would say, it's protected by somebody else's problem field. You look at it and you think, oh, that's somebody else's problem. Well, the reality is it's not somebody else's problem. It's our problem. And it's amazing to me that, you know, they're, they're trying to change things on the federal level. They're trying to change things on the state level. They're trying to get state associations to get life into them. Uh, recently, Josh went overseas to work on some international liaisons for the Premium Cigar Association. And at the same time, provide a great trade show where companies can go and sell their wares, but at the same time, have money for advocacy and yet also deal with issues that come up, like the responsible marketing pieces that have come out, you know, to, to get people talking about things that are important for our industry. So uh, because, you know, we've got side A of that question I just asked, I've got to hit side B. And as an organization, where do you think the PCA is getting it wrong and what can be done about that? I don't know if, if there's, I mean, I don't want to say that we don't do anything wrong because there, there are times where I want to beat my head against the wall. But I think part of it is trying to figure out the dual mandate. I mean, things for the, the PCA was founded, I want to say 1933. And uh, the only goal was to run a trade show. So the challenge is how do you work with limited resources? You know, you only have so many dollars to spend, you know, if you spend money on having bacon at the, the, the breakfast meeting, the PCA trade show, you spend money uh, putting a carpet into a particular room so it doesn't look so industrial, you know, you get criticized for spending too much money or you get criticized for, uh, for not saving enough money. Um, so I think the PCA needs to continue to listen to its membership. I think they need to continue to get more feedback from their members but at the end of the day you know we're, we're fighting an uphill uphill battle with apathy and i think every association faces that um, every association every business uh, the big challenge is um, where do people see the value proposition i have retailers here in dallas who i'm good friends with who don't see the value of spending 400 dollars a year to be a member of the premium cigar association I mean, four hundred dollars is nothing. It's a few boxes of cigars. Uh, you can spend four hundred dollars on getting somebody to clean your bathrooms over a couple month period. So the, the big challenge is to get people more involved, to get people um, engaged. And you're—it's like herding cats. I mean, every member of the PCA is a business owner, and yeah. it's their own business, and they don't want to be told what to do. So I think communication is still probably our biggest challenge, and I think we're getting better at it um, and providing the, the value proposition. Uh, so yes, uh, I think communication is still the area that we need to, to do better. Okay. Um, and while I'm teeing up this next question, I'm gonna ask, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's Jay or Garrett, but somebody has a secondary browser window or tab open that's playing some notification noises. 
So if you would please close any additional tabs so we don't get those noises in the broadcast. Um, well, we actually have a question uh, again from Greg, uh, who is uh, who's a brand owner and um, uh, wants to know, what do you think the biggest threat is to the retail side of the premium cigar business? I would say government regulation and the fact that certain manufacturers, I think, welcome regulation, whether we want to admit it or not. And I think that if I sat on the board and had shares in certain uh, companies in the, uh, the premium cigar world, I would want to be regulated by the government. I mean, the game plan is pretty obvious. If you look at what the cigarette companies did, uh, the, the few large cigarette companies basically wiped out a lot of their competition, bought them up, put them out of business, and they were able to agree to pay whatever they want to pay to the government. And then you have now in the cigarette industry, basically three or four companies that run everything. I think that that is something that people don't like to talk about. And I know that people cringe when I say that, but I don't think that um, every company wants to be free of regulation. I think some companies welcome it and they want it. And honestly, if I sat on the board of some of those companies, I would want it too. Um, but I think for the most part, a lot of the family-based companies, I don't think they want that. I think they want to help each other. Manufacturers in general really want to help each other. Um, so I think the biggest, the biggest challenge is continue to be regulation. I think that, you know, everyone's worried that we're never going to be able to smoke a premium cigar again. And I don't think that's the case because you can still smoke cigarettes in the United States. You can't ship them and you can't sell them online, but cigarettes are still consumed. And I think most people agree cigarettes are, um, FDA will be mad at me for saying this, a whole lot worse than cigars. So I, I don't think that cigars are going to be completely limited in this country, but we have uh, things like plain packaging that can become a real issue. We have the issue that if the FDA gets its will, that it will become so expensive to test new, new blends and new brands that it'll put a lot of companies out of business. And I think there's going to be pressure from certain companies that want to be regulated to decrease margins and make it harder and harder. Um, it's challenging sometimes that some of the larger companies are opening stores that compete directly with uh, company with brick and mortars that they sell cigars to. So I think the biggest challenge is going to be decreased margins and higher prices. And at the end of the day, cigars are discretionary. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I need to have a cigar. People wake up in the morning and they need to eat. They need to pay their rent. Uh, they need to make sure that their kid's education is taken for it. But nobody has to buy a cigar. And when the average price of a cigar moves from $5 to $8, maybe down the road to $20 or $30, then certain people will be excluded. And I think that that's a, a major threat. So I would say that the, the biggest existential threat would be the FDA. Um, a second threat, I know that Jose Blanco's mentioned that um, I think is something to be considered of is, you know, climate change. And I don't want to get into an argument about climate change, whether it exists or not. I'm probably more on the less that maybe it doesn't. But the reality is that, you know, crops and rain, those things can really affect uh, the ability to grow tobacco and to develop the right blends. So I think that the, the climate is something that certainly um, is a challenge. 
And I think there are political issues too. Generally, cigar tobacco where it's grown is not necessarily in the most uh, politically stable places in the world. That's right, William Cooper. Jose doesn't remember the Ice Age. He lived in the Ice Age. Uh, Jose found a wet nurse for Columbus before he, he left the, new world, the old world. Oh, that's good stuff. But that's I think good. Jose re, re, re brings up a valid point that, you know, for example, uh, I know that, you know, we sell a lot of uh, open sex in our store. And when I look at the, the rainfall that's occurred over the last number of years, Opus X has been really down. And when I look at the hurricane that missed Florida that kind of hit New York and Connecticut, it basically wiped out almost that entire crop of Connecticut shade and Connecticut broadleaf last year. So the climate can certainly affect uh, the cigar industry. Um, and then obviously with, you know, people buying so many cigars right now, there's only so much tobacco. So there's going to be there's going to be pressures on the ability to continue to produce good cigars. Yeah. Risty makes a good point that the factor of fertilizer has, has increased 10 times in price, not available as much huge factor in price increase. That's not, that's not out of the realm of, uh, of reality. I mean, uh, no. prices of everything. And even, even, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these tobacco farms while they're in, they're in, uh, you know, people look at these places <laughs> just just these little middle of nowhere farms a lot of these farms have very sophisticated irrigation equipment computer controlled irrigation systems and these and this is was always meant to increase efficiency thereby decreasing the price of the final product but when these systems start costing more and more money not only to purchase but to install then incrementally everything from fertilizer to to bands to boxes to labor costs to equipment for um uh equipment for irrigation and uh the cost of shipping it all is going to it's it's all going to hit the price of the register eventually oh it is now i mean yeah Shipping has gone up. Shipping has almost doubled in the last couple of years. Uh, Aristi raises a great point, but also wood. It's been very difficult to, to get wood. And, uh, you know, cigars are traditionally in wood boxes. Uh, it's been difficult to get labels. Uh, those those things all have. And, of course, you know, uh, look at how much more expensive it is to make a cigar in Costa Rica than the Dominican and how much more expensive it is in the Dominican than in Nicaragua. And as the cost of living increases and people uh, make more money Then you know, where are you going to make your cigars? And those, those are all, all stressors. Uh, yeah. But certainly there's a lot, there's a lot of things to consider, but I think the biggest issue is the FDA secondarily, the climate, you know? Yeah. That's why Padron for years will, will you send back empty boxes and they'll give you some money for that. Yeah. So, you touched on it briefly uh, a minute ago, and we can't, you know, can't go by without discussing one of the most hot button topics in the cigar industry uh, that I can remember in recent years. And that is the, uh, I call it the great packaging debate. So when it comes to cigar packaging, uh, the term that's often used is responsible marketing. Um, 
I know you a lot. You wear a lot of hats. You know, you've got the retailer hat, and you've got the consumer hat, and then you've also got the the PCA board member hat. So, taking into account all those all those factors, um, what are your kind of give us your synopsis or your thoughts about the responsible marketing slash packaging debate? Well. There, there's a lot of opinions. I, I think there's a spectrum. You have some of the more conservative companies. I'll say, I'll say Oliva, for example, that, you know, very simple packaging, very traditional. And then on the, probably the end of the spectrum, probably like, like Risty, who likes to push the envelope. And, uh, you know, at the Premium Cigar Association needs to speak for all of those people. And I know that when the PCA came out with, with its initial letter about responsible marketing it was very soft and i know the coop right now is slamming on his keyboard probably uh the challenge is is you know do you want to like regulate everybody so they don't want to come to the trade show and or do you want to just not say anything and the 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 big thing that um is how do you deal with the perception that you have in congress and, you know, when you talk with people like Pete Johnson or Carlito Fuente or George Padron, who will go to a senator's office and they're talking about how premium cigars are different. And then a senator pulls up a picture of something that came out from a particular cigar company. And then all of a sudden you lose the, the vote and the support that you need. So it's a, it's a very tough issue, you know, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I think every company just like every cigar shop that they want to is make as much profit as they can. They want to provide a good smoking experience. And, um, you know, it, it, it's difficult to say what the, the right direction is, but I do think it was good for the PCA to say that this is an issue we have to be concerned about. The question is, do you, you want to come across very heavy handed and, and try to force people to do things, or do you want to be very light and not do anything? Um, I do think that there, in my, my personal opinion, and this is me coming from the background of being a lawyer and a financial advisor, uh, two industries that are very heavily self-regulated. If the PCA can say to the FDA, this is what we encourage our manufacturers and our retailers to do. And these are the standards that, that we have set. And the things that you're seeing that you're complaining about, those are outside the standards. Kind of like the difference in someone who sells real estate versus, let's say, a realtor. Um, I think that that helps. So, for example, in the financial planning world, if you are a certified financial planner, you are held to certain standards. Uh, if, As a broker, when you sell a stock or a bond or whatever, you have to provide what is known as uh, reasonable advice. But if you're a certified financial planner, you have to provide um, uh, fiduciary advice and you're held to a higher standard. And I think there are some benefits of self-regulation where you can say to the FDA, this is what we as an industry have decided that we think is best. And what you're seeing here, the, these outlying cases, they don't really line up with that. Um, and I'm not, like I said, I'm not trying to attack anybody. Um, it just, I think at the end of the day, the FDA is going to regulate us. And to the extent that we can pull some of that regulation away from them and say that we are taking proactive steps, it helps. 
so for example, if a lawyer commits malpractice, you don't necessarily uh, get sued by the state. The legal system handles it. There is a very complicated uh, code of ethics for lawyers, and you have to adhere to that. And if you don't, then uh, the Supreme Court in your state will take care of you. And that keeps the government out of the situation. So to the extent that we can, as an industry, and I'm not saying just the PCA, but we as an industry, manufacturers, growers, uh, retailers, uh, every consumers, that if we can set a course, we have a little bit more control over the situation. Um, but like I said, I, I, it, it's going to be very difficult to get that in a way that everyone's going to be happy. And that, that's a very tough issue that, that we face as an industry because I, I think that if we don't, then we can face some of the issues like with plain packaging or some of the humongous taxes you see in places like Australia or, or what happened recently this year in Singapore where you can't even have a podcast that's considered advertising. Right. Uh, so those are all things that are out there that could really harm us as an industry. Yeah. And unfortunately, the needs of the whole are more important than the needs of individuals sometimes. But that's tough when the whole is run by a bunch of individuals. You know, yeah. the, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few to quote Star Trek. <laughs> so uh, on that on that line of thinking, obviously, being a board member of the PCA, every board members, you know, it's, it's not like um it's not like there's uh uh like like one person's vote on the board counts you know more than one vote you get one vote another board member gets one vote so on and so forth but if it comes down to it so let's say let's say at a board meeting it's uh, uh um, a motion is introduced to bring about some sort of regulation that comes in the form of cigar companies who wish to exhibit their products on the trade show floor and buy a booth at the, at the trade show and so on and so forth. They are, um, there will be uh, restrictions put in place whereby if a product is deemed irresponsible marketing, let's just use that term. If a product is deemed irresponsible marketing and the packaging and the visualization of the product or the naming of the product is, is deemed, say, potentially marketing to kids, and that was put up for a vote at the PCA board saying, we're, we're gonna vote yes or no on whether or not we should bar a company from marketing that particular product at their booth, showcasing that product at their booth, would you vote yes or no for that? I would probably vote yes. Um, the, the reality is if someone wants to sell a cigar, they can sell it. I think Risty, for example, showed that he was able to sell his munchies online the first set and uh i think that the pca if they're representing the the industry um i think it's better to say to the fda that um 
yes, this is occurring, but we're not encouraging it to, to happen. I think that that puts us in a better position with the government. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, whether somebody can uh, exhibit or not, they're still going to be able to sell their product. I think that a number of companies have shown that by going to direct consumer or working with certain stores that are not members of the PCA, they can still sell what they want to sell anyways. But I think it does help to take a stand. So I probably, uh, you know, it's difficult to say without looking at the particular language or whatever, but I would probably support um, restricting certain things. Um, and it's, it's more than just candy bars too. Uh, it would be things like, you know, sex, you know, do, do you really want to have a cigar called the porn with naked women on it? That being said, those cigars would probably get sold, uh, but they, they may not get sold on the trade show floor. They're going to get sold someplace else. Because uh, at the end of the day, if the consumer wants a cigar, they're going to go after it. I think Risty has shown, and I think other, and I don't mean to pick on Risty. I just, Risty's a, a very smart guy. Uh, I really enjoy Risty's cigars, and he's not afraid to push. But Risty has shown, and I think other companies have shown that, if someone wants to sell something, they're going to be able to sell it with or without the PCA's blessing. And, you know, it's free enterprise. So the PCA can only do so much. So the second, the other half or the other side of that coin from a question point of view is there, there's also, in addition to the cigar brands and the cigar manufacturers who exhibit their products at the PCA trade show, there's also PCA member retailers, you being one of those retailers, many PCA member retailers across the country. If, if a similar vote came up saying PCA retail, PCA member retailers are prohibited from selling products that are deemed quote, and again, to use the term irresponsible marketing, um, would you vote yes to that as well? I think there needs to be a carrot and a stick. If you want to be a, I'll use the term, an approved PCA retailer, and you're going to make sure that you've got a clean bathroom, that you don't uh, participate in discriminatory, discriminatory practices when you hire and employ people, if you decide that you're not going to carry certain items that are, that can be perceived as marketing to children. If you're going to make sure that you're carding everybody that looks like they're under 30, um, yeah, I think that the PCA has a right to say, if you're not going to adhere to those standards, there could be consequences, but there should be a benefit too, that if a, piece, if a store decides that they want to adhere to a certain number of provisions like that, so that we could say to the FDA, hey, we're doing this, 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 and this, which is all good for, uh, protecting the industry, then, you know, maybe those shops get an additional discount or access to other products or something from the PCA. But at the end of the day, I mean, if somebody has a shop and I, I think Coop said Bismarck, North Dakota, so I'll say Bismarck, North Dakota, and they, they want to, they want to sell cigars that, that only, uh, you know, market to children and have naked women and on, on their on their cigar bands, then you know that's between them and the government. But the PC as an organization, I think, has a responsibility to say this is the way we'd like to see things done. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question or not. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um, no TA Garrett example. I, Sorry, Coop. Um, Garrett, go ahead. So the issue that I have with this whole situation is I feel like we are going to create another political climate that will cause division within cigars. There will be a minority of cigar manufacturers that will want to die on the hill of, you know, we should be able to sell and market cigars as we see fit within the legal parameters already in place. And then there will be the majority who will try and separate themselves from those brands. And my question is, when do we as an industry um, really create a parameter that says, these are premium cigars, these are not, here's who we're gonna support and who and here is not. Because right now, there's this gray area fringe, you know, that I just think so many people are waiting for the shoe to drop and to kick some of these other companies and manufacturers to the curb because they want to die on that hill. Well, we, we as an industry don't even agree on what a premium cigar is. Correct. I guarantee you right now, if you were to call the president of Drew Estate and ask them to define a premium cigar, if you were to call Drew Newman at J.C. Newman and ask him to define a premium cigar, if you were to call uh, Pete Johnson at Tatawai and ask him to define a premium cigar, you would get three completely different answers. And that's just the nature of life. Uh, to me, the, the greatest example that I think the premium cigar industry should follow is what the GLBT community did. Um, gay men have a different agenda than lesbian women, have a different agenda than uh, trans people, have a different agenda than people who are non-binary, okay? But those, those different facets managed to get together in a lawsuit, find common ground, and achieve relief for what they wanted uh, with the federal government. And they have a lot of things they disagree with about each other. And I think that that's a good example for the cigar industry. I think the cigar industry would be well served, whether it's the PCA, the CRA, the CAA, whatever, the TA, whatever, you know, acronyms you want to use. I think something that the cigar industry needs is some agreement on common ground but common ground is difficult when you can't even agree on what a premium cigar is we right. can't agree uh, on a lot of those things and to me that's frustrating um you know for example at my store i pride myself on selling premium cigars but the reality is about 15 to 20 percent of my business is selling flavored cigars whether it's a groovy blue or a vanilla cigar you know, is a Sweet Jane a premium cigar? I don't know. Is a Blondie a premium cigar? I don't know. Is a cigar that is made traditionally, um, but it's platooned with flavors in the, in the Pallone, is that a premium cigar? 
do we even want to talk to the FDA about those issues? Uh, those are all things I don't have the answer for. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, I mean, right now we're dealing with, you know, whether the CRA knows how to handle their social media. And I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. I'm just using that as a recent example. But I think that it would behoove this industry to find common ground, agree on whatever the common ground is, and fight the government like hell about that. And as far as the other issues, well, if J.C. Newman has something that applies to them a little bit differently than other companies, or Drew Estate has something that applies to them differently, or another company has something that applies to them differently, then they can deal with that on their own. Um, but for example, in the lawsuit, I thought that the CRA and the PCA did a good job where the court came out and said, you've got this level two exemption possibly for premium cigars. And this is what we think a premium cigar is. It made sense to, to gravitate towards that as a, a point of common ground with the government. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I do think common ground would definitely benefit us. And we as an industry have epically failed at finding any sort of common ground when I think there is more common ground than we're willing to admit. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think in order to find that common ground, we've got to get more dialogue. And, you know, I like your example, Jay, of, you know, different agendas coming to the table to find common ground, but we've got to come to a table. We've got to have discussion and dialogue and some uh, middle road consensus happening. My fear is that um, that we won't do that, and that we will have division within the industry. And I, um, one of the things I advocate so much for in the cigar industry is its inclusivity. It's um, its ability to, you know, like earlier talking about retailers that um, that have community, um, that this industry is built on community. And I fear that this is an issue that will end up dividing rather than coming together. Now, my hope is that we can do just that, come to a table and get some consensus and um, at least have some common ground made. Well, but why does the PCA have to do that? I have an idea. How PCA about does. so? So here's I, here's I, an idea. How, how about that cigar, smoking tobacco, half wheel, coupe, uh, dojo, all the Boston Jimmy. You know, get together like ten or fifteen people in cigar media, set up a three hour meeting at the trade show this year invite retailers and manufacturers and get a big room where people can scream at each other and say, hey, what are some common ground things? And I think maybe the media where, you know, your money is not tied up in what cigars, tobacco you grow, what cigars you make, what cigars you sell. And maybe the media can take an active role in that and saying, what are some things that we can agree on? Maybe we only agree on two things, that we like to light the cigars and cut the cigars. But I think that maybe that's an area where someone could take the baton. I don't know if CRA or even PCA, and I might get in trouble for saying that, or CAA or the TA is the right uh, vehicle. Maybe cigar media. This is an area where, where the cigar media 
can come out and you guys can have some, you know, celebrity death sport and find common ground. And why not? That'd be a great thing to do at the trade show. You know, I'm sure Scott Pierce could probably work out where we get a breakout room for three or four hours. And I think that'd be a wonderful, wonderful thing to have, you know, some agreement on whether it's three points, five points, 20 points of common ground that we as an industry can start to pursue and then figure out what the heck to do with it. It would be entertaining so, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I am all for being a part of um, uh, facilitating that conversation. That's exactly the word I was going to use. Um, I would love that opportunity. That's really that's yeah. really what we that's why we do this show really is to facilitate yes. conversation and have people tell their stories and stuff like that. But um, we we have always. I mean, we have our opinions about all this stuff, but the fact is. Um, everybody. There's nuance to everybody's opinion. And one of the things Garrett brings up regularly is that when we when we engage in any of this on social media the the good parts of it always get lost on social media because you can't have a real conversation on social media social media is you know you're on one side of this wall and somebody else is on the other side of this wall and you're just throwing things over the wall at each other and there's no actual yeah, conversations being had it's just a, yeah it's a monologue and um I it wouldn't I'll be honest the scenario you're talking about of having you know all uh, a lot of the media people and a lot of the manufacturers in in a in a breakout room together it could get ugly uh but it could be if if it's if it's done uh if it's done properly it could at least be uh, somewhat productive, um, but it could get ugly in a hurry. I, I, think, I think that we would be amazed at how much we actually agree. Say that again, Jay. I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot more common ground in this industry. That I think, for example, I think people believe that it's important to be able to enjoy a cigar and relax. I think people believe it's important to be able to buy a legal adult product. I think people believe that if they drink alcohol, they want to be able to pair with that alcohol. I think people believe that uh, that this is something that should be kept away from kids. I think people believe that um, the free market should determine this and not the government. So I think there are a lot of areas we do agree upon. And if, if there's areas we don't, that's fine. But there's a lot more common ground that I think we give ourselves credit for. No, absolutely. And I and I think we would do ourselves a disservice to not at least get to that table. And Jay, I would love to follow up with you on how we could be a part of at least getting a table set for conversation to be had, no matter how big or small it is. The fact that um, conversation is being had, I think is the key part. If we don't at least set that table nobody's going to come to dinner and we got to get people there so yeah and there there are smart people i mean i i couldn't read the whole comment but you know risty had a comment but i would like to see risty at this meeting i'd like to see abe debevna at this meeting i'd like to see steve sock at this meeting robert caldwell at this meeting you know people that have 
you know, Brian from Pravada. Get get a lot of people in the room that maybe we don't agree about a lot of things. But you know what's funny is that despite what Risty may think or Robert Caldwell may think or Scott Pierce may think or Ezra Zai may think, all these different, you know, companies that, you know, what Charlie Minato may think, I think it would we'd be surprised at how many things we agree about. Because, you know, I've smoked a cigar with Risty, and it was one of the most enjoyable two hours I ever had. I drove up to another shop and hung out with Risty, and we had a great freaking time. And, you know, there's more, there's so much more we have in common than what we don't have in common. And I, I agree. The term that you use, a dialogue, is what we need. You know, yep. Dan Thompson's company, he'd be a great moderator. Dan gets along with everybody. Yeah. I just, yeah, I agree. Outside it. of evening and there have to be alcohol probably involved <laughs> not too much not too much because then well and i i really appreciate katie's comment she said most positive change over history starts ugly and that's yes. that that's a very insightful comment it's it's oh have you watched the miniseries john adams oh. on hbo when they have the first the first couple con Justin's continental Katie. congresses and they're just fighting like crazy but when they finally started to figure out you know, like one of the things that is so taboo to talk about right now in this country is slavery. But slavery was an unfortunate thing that we had to deal with later as a country in order to get the Declaration of Independence and get all the colonies on board. But but this the greatness of this country was we found common ground and we figured it out. And then we had unfortunately we still have to deal with other issues later, which ultimately led to the Civil War. But still. And I know the bear is probably going crazy because he loves history, but we can find common ground. And I, and I don't think we should exclude people. Guys like Risty are really smart. Guys like Brian from Provada are really smart. Guys like Carlito Fuente are very smart. And you put all those people in a room and maybe the vitriol won't be as high as we think it is. And I didn't get to see Katie's comment. Can you, what was her comment? She said most positive change over history starts ugly. She's right. Yeah. And that's Justin's fiance, by the way. Justin's our producer here. So she's well, she hits the nail right. on the head. Yeah. Justin's yeah. wrong. <laughs> um, um, I, I can I I want to give an update. Oh, so on your on your cigar? I don't know if anyone has noticed or if you noticed I was doing one of these. This cigar, number one, <laughs> it's delicious. It is absolutely delicious. Okay. But I had to put it down for a good 10, 15 minutes and ride a wave <laughs> because it did kick my ass. And I just ate a huge dinner. Um, did you retrohale? I did. <laughs> <laughs> And the the cloa glease is even stronger. <laughs> is it really? Yeah, you wow. know, Pete has a cigar coming out that he made over a year ago for his 50th anniversary. And I'll tell you exactly what I told Pete. It may not be the best cigar I've ever smoked, but it had the most incredible retrohale of any cigar I've ever smoked. And th those those uh, Escasos, or luxury Escasos, I think is what Pete calls them, they're just amazing. And you're smoking the mildest of the four. Well, that's that's a meal. Apparently, I'm a lightweight tonight. That's all right. That's all right. I remember my first cigar. 
Here's Garrett's. Garrett's. I remember my first nicotine high. Risty says. Well, even, <laughs> it happens. <laughs> even Todd commented. Like I look over at him and I'm like, dude, this cigar. He was like, I look. I watched you and yeah. It's stupid good. That that's an that is one of the best cigars to come on the market in the last twenty years. It's amazing. Well, I think I'm pretty sure. Is, is it, it time? Is it time? I think it's time. Is it time? It is now oh, time yeah. for this week's Numero, Numero de los Muertos. And as always, Numero de los Muertos is brought to us by our friends at Smoke In. All right, Numero de los Muertos, episode 155. Garrett, what do you have for us this week? You guys are not going to like me. Well, I mean, that was already the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) This week, I have, on average, four people in the United States die doing this. You're welcome. So, Jay, we basically get to play 20 questions uh, and try to figure out what on earth Garrett's talking about. So, I I just want to clarify. On average, four people a year die doing this? That, That is correct. Is this a global number? U.S. It's a U.S. number. Four people a year in the U.S. die from this. Uh, is it? Uh, is it a? Are they workplace accidents? Uh, usually not. Okay. Low numbers are the toughest. Okay, so Chad, I don't think you should watch the show anymore. <laughs> so it's not getting a haircut? Well, well what about the Flowbee? Do you remember the Flowbee? The vacuum cleaner attachment hair cutting thing from the 80s infomercial? Yes. Yes. Uh, probably a few people died using that thing back I'll in the day. I'll look that up. Yeah. Uh, well, you're in Chicago drinking Sterno. <laughs> oh, drinking Sterno. Wow. Going number two, that's. Yeah, pinging. Nope. Uh, no, no sex. No. no. Shaving uh, off a beard. Shaving off a beard named Jay. I love it. Wow. Thanks, Mark. I feel. I feel like <laughs> we Sorry. just all collectively became thirteen years old. We uh, this this game always turns us into like adolescent, dirty-minded pigs. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah, it is uh it is n- nothing in the realm of sex or bodily functions. Um are these uh 
applying for FDA regulations. You know, I think it probably caused a lot of headaches uh, and indigestion, but I don't think anybody's ever died from it. Uh, are these, would these be considered, uh, is it a recreational activity? No. It's not a recreational activity. Um, is it related to eating? It is not. Okay, not related to eating. Um, ooh, cutting your toenails. No. Um, it's definitely a paper airplane accident. <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, uh, eating at a buffet, that's a really interesting guess. It's not it. Higher than four. Is, does it happen on land or water? Land. Are vehicles involved? Vehicles are not involved. Are weapons involved? Weapons are not involved. Walking the dog is not correct. Are animals involved? No animals, no kites. No animals were harmed in the making of this numero de los muertos. Correct. No <laughs> rock climbing. Um, Jump rope actually is a really good... I wonder if I could find that. That's a good one. Water skiing? Nope. Um, Happens on land. If you were listening, you would know that. I was. Uh, <laughs> Todd. <laughs> All um, right. No, not walking off a oh. ring by, not swing set, no. No animals, no vehicles. No mat tie, no, no, animals, no, no swimming. Falling asleep. If you keep watching the show like this, you will fall asleep and maybe die. Not fishing, not slacklining, no water. I need Upstate another. your iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> um, are electronics involved? Yes. Electronics are involved. Um, is it uh, hanging a TV on the wall? Mm -mm. It is a good guess. Uh, is it installing components in a computer? Mm -mm. Does it have anything to do with servers? No. No cell phones. Anything to do with mobile? No cell phones. Okay. No vape explosions. No ceiling fans. Not space heaters. Not e-scooters. Uh, no vehicles. Um, but it does have to do with electronics. Yes. No they, outlets. Not we. Is it video game systems? Nope. Changing a okay. light bulb. Here, hang on. So Anthony is on the right track here. So Anthony says using a toaster or is it is it putting your your hands or a utensil inside a toaster? No. Blender. Um, oh, is it uh, putting something exploding in a microwave? No. Putting your hand in a garbage disposal? Nope. So the correct device has been named. Is the device a toaster? No. Is the device a microwave? It is a microwave. 
is it a leaky microwave? <laughs> like where the where the microwave energy leaks out? Oh, of the, the uh, no. Okay, because that does happen. It does. Um. Yes, definitely cooking coke. Is it putting microwave. is it putting metal in a microwave? Nope. Uh, oh, is it? Is it microwaves falling off of the wall? Mm -mm. Uh, okay. Not metal in a microwave. Oh, is it food poisoning from microwaved food? Ooh, Bear said that. That's really good. No, that's a really good oh, guess. Not that. Um, uh, microwaving grapes. That was my wife's. Like, Dude, have you done that? That's so fun to create I, plasma. I've never done that. Oh, <laughs> that's a blast. Uh, it's not that. It's not superheating water. It's not plugging it in. Ooh, pacemaker. Mm -mm. Is it microwaving alcohol? No. Does it have anything to do with the the item that's put in the microwave to cook or is no. it something with the mechanism itself? I mean, it would have to do with the mechanism itself. The, uh, being killed by the microwave turntable. Nope. Not that mechanism. The, uh, <laughs> Aaron guessed, Microwave door hitting the face. Is it? Uh, yes. Roberto. Got it. Good job, Roberto. Microwave repair? Yes. Real, so when people try to fix their own microwaves, they get yes. zapped? Oh, yeah. Four people a week? Four people a year. Because oh, those things... Zero risk. What are those things called? Uh, the uh, Transformer? Yeah. So, yeah, it takes. Uh, so on the other end of that transformer is the amperage. Absolutely could be instant death. It is moving a lot of the little. Yeah, because our friend John Basil makes these awesome custom ashtrays with the wood burned uh i forget what if somebody knows the name of that where you you so you take that part out of the microwave and right. you use it and hook it up to jumper cables and put it on wood with some baking soda and water and it makes these lightning bolt style burning patterns through the wood there's a name lichtenberg thank you anthony and, and our friend john basil makes these awesome custom ashtrays with that wood burning effect uh and it's uh so yeah and he, he said that's no joke you can't mess and and john basil is an electrical engineer so he knows what he's doing when it comes to taking those things apart and reusing the the components don't try that at home pretty much ever <laughs> yeah high voltage high voltage high amperage high risk and low intelligence of the average uh american so if Four people a year, not a big number. Not a big number. That was that was fun to get there. That was I'm good. Glad you got there. That was good. All right. So that was this week's numero de los muertos. All right. 
So let's jump into the lightning round. And the lightning round is brought to us by our friends at J.C. Newman Cigar Company. They are America's oldest family-owned premium cigar maker, creators of the popular Brickhouse, Perla Del Mar, Diamond Crown, and the American J.C. Newman Cigar Company operates out of their 112-year-old El Relo Cigar Factory in historic Cigar City, Tampa, Florida. For more information on their cigars or their visitor experience, please visit jcnewman.com. So, Jay, some non-cigar-related questions for you, sir. If you could hear the thoughts of one living person for 10 minutes, who would it be? And why? Uh, my wife, so I'm not in trouble all the time. <laughs> brave man. You are very, brave. very brave. Very yes, brave. I, would, I don't have the strength to hear what my wife's thinking. I don't. I don't. I'm not strong enough. I freely admit it. Um, all right, Jay. If you were about to get into a fight, what would your soundtrack music be? Oh, geez. Run away. Um, <laughs> Street Fighting Man by the Rolling Stones. Okay. That's a first-time answer, I think, on that one. I would agree. Yeah, first time. Um, all right. So, Jay, choose one of the following. You could hit a home run as a starting pitcher. You could score a touchdown as a defensive lineman. You could score a goal in a hockey game as the goalie, or you could score a goal in a soccer game as the goalie. Oh, I'd say probably hit a home run as a pitcher while pitching a perfect game. Oh, while pitching a perfect game. And speaking of perfect games, just last week, uh, unfortunately, it was against our Minnesota Twins. Uh, but uh, uh, now I'm a jerk and I can't remember the guys. The pitcher from uh, L.A. Kershaw. was pulled. Yeah, Kurt, Clayton Kershaw was pulled uh, at the beginning of before the beginning of the seventh inning or before the – he pitched through seven. So before the beginning of the eighth inning, he pulled him and Blessed. he was on his way to a perfect game. So frustrating. I, I, I weep for baseball. The, the designated yeah. hitter, the, 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 the pollutions come to the national league now. And well, um, I, I, I actually, I'm a fan of the DH, but that's, <laughs> that's a debate for another time. I, I, well, no, I'll, I'll tell you why I, I like, I don't like the DH. Because I think, to me, part of the greatness of baseball is, you know, are you going to have that pitcher who's pitching a good game, but he's a liability when it comes up to hit? I think that that is a part of the, the strategy of baseball. Like, I know that the analytics say you never should steal a base, but that's also part of the greatness of baseball. But I'm a traditionalist. You know, I love guys like Christy Matheson and Walter Johnson and Cy Young and um, – you know what? Yeah, maybe you maybe you damage your arm for the rest of the season, but Kershaw would have been what the twenty first or twenty second pitcher ever to pitch a perfect game. Bear would probably know that he would have. Um, he would have been the twenty. The well, in in history, there have been I believe twenty three perfect games. In you know, history, look at a guy like Nolan Ryan. What seven no hitters, but he never had a perfect game. Correct. You know that's just to me the greatness of baseball. Um, is are those little things, and that's why I love baseball. Um, now I'm hearing that Kershaw may have asked to have been pulled, and or well, he I, didn't ask to be pulled. He didn't ask to be he, pulled. He, he told his coach would have let told, him stay. 
He told Roberts, he said, I'm feeling a little gassed. And based on that one comment, Roberts pulled him. You know what? I, I would have kept just, him in. To me, I'm, I'm a purist. You know, it's just it's one of those things that's so rare in baseball. But, yep. you know, I understand Roberts. He wants to win a World Series this year. And if his pitcher says he's feeling gassed, maybe you put that on Kershaw. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It was it was fun to watch, even though it was against our team. Uh, seeing seeing a pitcher play like that is is it's a joy to watch. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, you have a great stadium, by the way. I got to see a game a few years ago up there in Minnesota. Oh yeah, it's a great Thank target. You. Target Field's a really nice uh, spot to watch a ball game in. Let's say June through September. Uh, right now, don't know. It's terrible right now because I don't want to watch baseball in the snow. I just don't. We're in our third winter. Yeah, third third winter. It never ends. Uh, so let's move into this week's Notable Smokable. And Notable Smokables on How About That Cigar Live are brought to us by our friends at Ace Time Cigars. Notable cigars, notable purpose, notable passion. So each week on How About That Cigar Live, each of us names a cigar that we've smoked recently that was interesting to us. It could be a cigar that's been on the market for decades that maybe we just smoked for the first time in a while, or it could be a cigar that's brand new that we just smoked for the first time ever. So, Jay, what have you smoked recently that fits that criteria? I recently smoked a uh, La Galera Habano, which is a cigar I used to smoke quite a bit, and I don't think I'd picked one up for probably, oh, I don't know, maybe six months or eight months, and I was in the Dominican Republic, and... And Hochi gave me one right off the production floor, and I smoked it. It was one of those, you know, oh, my God, why haven't I been smoking these? Uh, it's it's such a delicious cigar. It's, it's very affordable, and it just reminded me that sometimes that we're so focused on what's new that we forget a, about a lot of great cigars that we already have in our humidor. And that's just a, a great, you know, $7.5 cigar that I really enjoyed that I had just denied myself of that for a good 9 or 10 months. Very nice. Uh, Garrett, what was your notable smokable this week? I am going to say I smoked the Davidoff Florida Sungrown. Okay, nice. Um, also gifted to me by the lovely Todd Fickner on our trip down. And I got to tell you, that cigar was delicious. Nice. I didn't know what to expect. Um but uh, uh, Jeff and crew with Davidoff, my hats go off to them. That is a damn good cigar. Yeah. Um, and before um, before I get to uh, um, mine, I want to echo what Bear mentioned, the Gran Habano Blue and Green Robusto. I had not seen that cigar in any local shops. I, I know this was, uh, this was very highly regarded by, by Bear. Um, I want to say it was maybe on his on his top ten cigar of the year list a couple of years ago, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm remembering that right. I just remember, specifically remember him talking highly about that cigar, and I found it at a small shop, um, actually in Wisconsin, and picked it up and uh, you know thank thank you to Bear for recommending it. I love that cigar. I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but my notable this week was actually I kind of went went back in my 
um, you know, some of my early days of cigars. And I picked up um, uh, out of my humidor. I've got some from a box from probably years ago. I honestly don't remember how old they are. But the the Tatuaje Cabaguan, just the original. I mean, it's just, it's every, it's always... I can't remember ever smoking one that wasn't good. And it's it's just a pleasing aroma and flavor and burns great. And I love that cigar. And it's so, like That's Jay said, it's so nice sometimes to come back to a cigar you haven't had in a long time and just remember how it sort of gives you... Because, you know, there's there's been some construction issues lately. And it kind of brings back a little faith in the in cigars that you know everything's okay, no no worries, everything's fine. There's still, um, you know, there's still good cigars being made out there. So I uh, just love that one. Uh, so that was this week's notable smokable, brought to us by Ace Prime, improving lives through fine cigars. Please visit aceprime.com to learn more. So real quick, yes, real quick. I just want to thank Jay for not only all the hats he wears as a retailer for the PCA, but his um, attendance in cigar media and uh, spreading the love, watching cigar media and being involved in this industry. I love the fact that you're on the PCA and uh, you've got your finger and on the pulse of this industry. Thank you for all you do and how much you support us both just as a, you know, a, consar- a cigar consumer watching media and engaging. It means a lot. So thank Absolutely. you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I love cigar media. When I, Whenever I get into something, I, I go full bore. And it's always great to hear the different things that uh, you guys are talking about. And, you know, like we had this ridiculous segment on Dojo the other day about your favorite fast food meal. And I can't remember the last time I thought about Burger King onion rings and, you know, things like that. It's just fun. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that segment uh, on that dojo show. And uh, um, I had some agrees and some disagrees with the fast food section, but uh, it's all good. That's why everybody's got different tastes. It's it's all good. Um, So to give our viewers and listeners an idea of some cool stuff we have coming up in the next few weeks. Next week on the 25th of April, we have Fred Rui on the show from Illusione Cigars. And then we are already going into the month of May. On May 2nd, we have Ian Reith from Dapper Cigar Company. Very excited to have him on the show. We got to uh, interview him at the TPE trade show uh, back in January and excited to get him on the big show on Monday night so we can get his full story. So, Jay, thank you again for being on the show. And please give our viewers and listeners an idea where is the best place for them to find out everything they need to know about Blue Smoke of Dallas. Well, I'd like to say our, our website, but it's, it's not very robust. Uh, you know, I, I think our social media, probably our, our Instagram, uh, blue underscore smoke underscore Dallas. Uh usually put up different cigars that uh, I'm smoking as well as new, new things that are coming into the store. And we are located in Dallas near Love Field at 4560 West Mockingbird Lane. So for those of you familiar with Dallas, it is on Mockingbird between the Tollway and Love Field. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Jay, 
I'm going to echo what Garrett said and, and so many of our viewers have said. Um, we're grateful for not only for you being on the show tonight, which we are super grateful for, but for your um, uh, for for your activity in in the cigar world. You're we are also consumers of other cigar media. We watch Coop show and Dojo show and Bear show and um, seeing the fact that you are you're usually a staple in the comments that you're you're actively listening and participating and wanting to know what's going on in the cigar world and that shows that you have um like garrett said you have your finger on the pulse of what's going on and you actually you you care enough to want to know what people are saying about the premium cigar world and that's meaningful to us and we're, we're grateful to you for that. And we look forward to uh, great success for your retail shop and uh, great success uh, for the PCA and in that it affects really all of us. So all the best to you, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on tonight. All right. So viewers and listeners, guys, thank you so much for always being the best part of How About That Cigar Live. We are so grateful to you for watching and listening. Uh, if you're on Facebook watching, make sure to like the Facebook page. If you're watching on YouTube, please make sure to subscribe to the channel. Uh, follow us on all social media at HBT Cigar. And of course, until we see you guys next time, burn cigars. Not bridges. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everybody.